Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac podcast. The podcast where we do things excellent. Talking about a story that I wrote. I've submitted my own story for discussion. I guess it's loosely related to Hemingway's List, as I'm the host of a podcast called The Hemingway List. Um, the story's called Linda Spends a Little Time with Chris. And I don't know, it's a bit of a... Um, what am I trying to say? It's strange to to submit this to you guys for your opinions after all this classic books we've read together. But uh, I don't know, I thought it would be a kind of cool idea if we all shared some stories. So if anyone has stories that they want to be part of this, send them through. Who had a recommendation for me? Actually, there was a good one. Let me just check my messages here. Um, oh, yeah. So Swim Said the Moment Fishy actually suggested this one a while ago. It's called O. Henry's short story, The Ransom of Red Chief. Uh, it's a classic short. So we might do that for tomorrow's one. And then um, That's not one that Swim Said the Moment Fishy wrote. It's just one that she likes but that's cool we'll read that um all right so here's my story linda spends a little time with chris linda was to bow twice for each body she cremated once before it was slid into the furnace and another longer bow of no less than five seconds as per company policy before the body was incinerated on a typical day linda executed five or six of these longer bows her boss, Mr. Yamashita, Mr. Hey, wait, how do you say that? I should know I wrote this. Her boss, Mr. Yamashita, that's how that's said. Mr. Yamashita had many strict rules about the running of his business, and on her first day, he'd given Linda a handbook of protocol, all 173 pages of which he had written himself. Linda often thought about the section of the book regarding the long bow of no less than five seconds. Here were stipulated a difficult set of rules, but Linda made an effort to adhere to them obediently, for she found these rules agreeable. The long bow was important to her. More than just a formality, it was an intimate moment between cremator and corpse and no one else, where the cremator paid their respects and gave their thanks to the deceased. That this last ritual might be appreciated or even needed by the deceased weighed heavily on Linda's mind. If there was a heaven and a hell or some next place to go to, then maybe, Linda worried, this, might, this last little ritual played some pivotal role in the rest of their infinite journey. The handbook stipulated that the cremator must peacefully think about the deceased for five seconds or longer in the respectful bow position, page 87, the cremator must pay respect to any of the following that they deem applicable, who they were, their dedication to their faith, their family values, their achievements, their lifestyle, leisure activities, hobbies, etc., their contributions to their community. To end the prayer, the cremator will feel thankful toward the deceased for their life. This was relatively easy if Linda had watched the service, easier again if she had known the deceased, but in many cases she would need to read a section of the program 
if it had been provided, or even make some assumptions. He was kind, she was well-mannered, etc. And be thankful to them all the same. According to Mr. Yamashita, this gesture of gratitude was the reason their crematorium was so well respected. The first body on this particular Monday belonged to Karina, 76, survived by two daughters and seven grandchildren. Linda hadn't known Karina, but from the funeral program she gleaned that Karina had been rather pretty in her youth and that she had been the proud keeper of a famous lotus garden. Atop the cardboard casket was a bouquet of lotus flowers that Karina's daughters had sent down with her. Linda made a plan to visit the lotus garden, and then immediately felt a pang of guilt at the realisation that she almost definitely wouldn't, even though her weekend was free and it was supposed to be sunny. Linda by now had already started Linda by now had already stared at the casket for too long and was beginning to feel a familiar sense of dread. She turned, took the back exit, plucked a chrysanthemum flower from the garden bed and took it back to Karina's casket, placing it beside the lotus flowers. She bowed once, slid the casket into the furnace and lowered her head a second time. When almost three frustrating minutes had passed, Linda closed the furnace and ignited it. The flames warmed her face, her nerves tickled with an upsurgence of regret. She bowed a third time, a bow not specified in the handbook, and offered Karina a quiet apology. It had taken a year of working as a cremator before Linda had become a perfectionist about her low bows. Now, rarely would she perform one without becoming momentarily obsessed about its quality. The short bow never caused her stress. It was a simple bow to say, I'm going to move you into the furnace now. And since the bodies never disagreed, it never bothered her. But the long bow, that was an intimate moment, the last interaction the deceased would have before being obliterated. And she took this responsibility seriously. What a horrible neglect to execute a sub par final tribute to the departed. Later that morning there was a call from the police station. Linda took a homeless man's body out of cold storage where it had been for ten days while the police investigated his death. He'd been found resting against the concrete pillar of an underpass. They hadn't managed to work out who he was and with no name or known family the body would be cremated without ceremony. To Linda he looked eighty years old. How many of those years had he spent in poverty, she wondered, and what might it be like for an old man to survive out there with nothing? Looking at him now, it was difficult to imagine that he could ever have that he could have ever had anything worth living for, or anything to contribute to the world. She tried to imagine him young, smiling, making other people smile, being cunning, clever, generous. Surely he had never been any of those things. She could easily imagine him being confused or feeling lame or sorry for himself, a lethargic young man, maybe an addict or a criminal. She tried harder to imagine his face young. Maybe he'd been a father, a career man who later befell to tragedy, or strings of tragedies, until he was so defeated and alone, fired, widowed, abandoned, that he'd just given up entirely. Maybe blow after blow had turned him crazy. Sanity was a fickle thing. A few bad turns and your world could suddenly be upside down. 
Once, Linda had been relaxing on a beach in Broome when a brown snake with a rat struggling in its mouth had dropped into her lap from the tree above her. How quickly she turned insane that day. Years went by before her resting heart rate returned to normal. It was creeping up now just thinking about it, how its muscles tightened as it twisted against her wrist, the strength of it. She shook the thought away. She bowed to the man on the trolley and moved him into the furnace, whereupon she froze and stared at him again, feeling the snake wind its way up her body. Maybe he'd been an alcoholic or been abusive. That's why he'd been abandoned. Who turned their back on whom? No, pray properly. She composed herself. A soul had lived in this body, she reminded herself. A soul that was once a child and a lover, and that once mourned, laughed, hurt. A soul that was, what? A little bit of stuff, ready ready and ripe to burn. Quietly, she said, I'm not sure who you were, if you did good or bad things with your life, but I am sorry that it ended this way for you. She ignited the furnace. As far as Linda supposed, a soul was a little bit of biotic matter with some energy passing through it in a specific way before escaping back into the universe. When a person died, energy stopped flowing through that bit of biotic matter in that particular way. All the energy that had ever passed through that bit of biotic matter and escaped back into the universe was, according to the laws of thermodynamics, still out there. Just an infinitesimally small bit of heat mingled with near-infinite energy in a blanket of warmth. Perhaps, she often thought, if the soul really was just a bit of biotic matter with energy flowing through it in a particular way, well then perhaps, in that case, you could never really have a soul. Only a snapshot of a soul at any given moment. Energy passed through it, and new energy entered it, and it was an ever-new thing, changing by the moment, a perpetual cycle of new and new deaths. Old energy from her soul, in this case, would be out there, co-mingling with the other energies in the warm blanket. To think of one's own jettisoned soul energy like this was surely as far as one could get in understanding what it was, the thing of being dead, she was sure. Unless, of course, her theory was wrong and a candle's flame was just a candle's flame. She'd read once that the human body cycled its atoms completely over about ten years, meaning that the body she inhabited today did not contain a single atom that her body ten years previous had. She was a new candle now, and she'd keep rebuilding herself while the flame fed on its host and became whatever it might be next. She thought these things while the man burned and the brown snake's muscles constricted inside her throat and she knew that in the warm blanket above her the man's soul had certainly found the sentience to feel sorrow and it felt it now and it felt betrayal. Mr Yamashita ate his egg sandwich, responding politely to Linda's comments as she potted around the lunchroom. The old detergent was better, she said lightly. Mr. Yamashita nodded, his eyes still lingering on the paragraph he was reading. Delayed, he muttered, It was better, wasn't it? Cheaper, too. Really? Yes, Mr. Yamashita said. He lifted his head, sensing she was ill at ease. Linda, I hope you don't mind me asking, is everything okay? Oh, yes, just a rough week. I've been worried about some family things. Ah, said Mr. Yamashita accepting her lie. 
I see. She had been worried, certainly, but not about family things, and not for only a week, far longer. Her worry was a building boil in her mind for years now. Working here had built up pressure in the boil, and she'd allowed this to happen in the misguided belief that with enough worry pus it might pop and flood relief, and in that moment all the questions pressuring her pus boil would find resolve and she might feel peace. Flicking the TV on or the paper open would take her mind off the boil, and momentarily it would stop growing, and in some cases the boil pressure would reduce. But the boil remained, and as always persisted to niggle. Today was a bad day for the boil. A lot of days were recently, and she wondered how long it would be before the thing might pop. Sometimes she yearned for it to happen. Mr. Yamashita folded his paper. Did he want to say something else? Was he going to ask her to take time off? Or worse, was she not cut out for the job after all? She wouldn't go easily, she knew that much. This was important work, and if Mr. Yamashita replaced her with some teenager who would do her job for pittance, they would no doubt perform their long bow as a matter of muscle memory, barely interrupting their train of thought. They might even skim a second or two off, if no one was around, to see how they might not bow at all. I wondered if it was about your neighbour. Hmm? Linda hummed. This afternoon we'll be cremating Christopher, you remember? Yes, I remember. The microwave beeped. Linda said, He was 27, didn't you say? Yes, that's right. I wondered if... I thought he was younger. He nodded politely. Were you close with your neighbour? My neighbour's son, Linda thought. I knew him, yeah. You knew him? Actually, she said, and thought briefly of his face that one day, probably three years ago, when they spoke, sitting on the retaining wall at the bottom of her garden, how, when she asked him about his work, he simply said he'd given up on it. He picked a strawberry, and she said to take a few. Actually, yeah, we talked a few times. I'm sorry, he said, with a roboticism only Linda could know, having heard him say that same I'm sorry so many times. He left a note, didn't he? He did. His father didn't want it shared, but his mother thought it should be. They had an argument over it. Linda nodded. A copy of it, he said, handing her a folded square. I thought it might help. Linda took it. Poor, poor Christopher, she thought, holding the note while Mr. Yamashita left the room. He never was at home in himself. She considered it a long moment, then unfolded it. I remember when, if you made a promise to yourself, you took it seriously. Things were we told ourselves then carried weight. It must have been that we had a greater respect for promises or a greater respect for ourselves or both. I remember the nutty, hickory back taste, the chemical tinge sensation of the man marijuana cigarette sinking into my capillaries, and how that didn't scare me then as it does now, now that I don't trust myself or keep promises with myself. I remember creating art on my own, without need of codeine, Altheanine and MSG to take the edge off the caffeine, modafinil and dexamphetamine bumping around my skull. I remember honestly believing I deserved a place in this world just by virtue of my inheritance of the code of evolution and a spark of life. Being here meant I deserved to be here. Now what do I believe of myself? That I will repeat my mistakes again and again, over and over, ignore my health over and over and over, squander my time away on the trivial make lists of things I should do but not do them, judge, 
criticize, lean this way and that on one bias and another, I can trust myself to continue becoming more cynical, less disciplined, less intelligent, less trusting, more paranoid, and more and more to boot, and more confused, and more frustrated, and even more disappointed in myself. What can you trust, once your ability to trust has been undermined? And how can you feel safe, then? Call it phase two and hope for a phase three and that it's better? Take that little placebo hope pill and the best sedative on the market? and ride it out quieted and dumbed convince yourself it wouldn't have made a difference anyway in the grand scheme of things even if you did become that person you believed you would if there's nothing left for you here and you're not going to make an effort then you're wasting everyone's time i'm going to do this thing now and i want you all to know i'm sorry and i love you the note remained in linda's shirt pocket while she extracted the homeless man's bones she'd become faint after reading it now she was nauseous She yearned to pull her gloves off and take some fresh air. Ashes, bones, scoop them up, take a breath, back into battle. She paused, squeezing a handful of ash, recognising that the battles were long finished once her job started. Everyone had moved along. Family, friends, doctors, nurses, and here she was, sweeping up battlefields inside battlefields inside battlefields. Call it phase two and hope for a phase three and that it's better. Gently, she tipped the ash into the cardboard urn, telling herself that once this task was done, she'd get some fresh air. She swallowed laboriously, her throat squeezing tighter. Later, she stood before Christopher's body and bowed once, then slid him into furnace one. After boxing up the homeless man's ashes, she helped with Christopher's service by handing out programs as guests arrived. Then she'd watched from the back. The service had been full and heavy with sorrow. Young funerals were awful. Now it was just her and the young man, and between them would be the last interaction he'd ever have, one-sided as it may be. What caused a young man to give up so in the midst of his life? There was a little soul spot in there somewhere which would soon be burned away. There was some energy up there too in the warm blanket that once ran through Christopher's body. Linda lowered her head, counted to five, and ignited the furnace. Her skin constricted around her limbs. She stared into the fire, then found herself removing her shirt, her shoes, her socks. Found herself considering the belly height of furnace too. Found herself hearing whispers, giggles, spat out curse words. Linda slid herself legs first into Furnace 2, rolled onto her hip, shuffled herself around. A strong wind had come through the crematorium, hissing hatefully around her ears, and in it she listened hard, listened for the voices from the warm blanket to tell her what she'd done, how she'd done. She reached a hand out from her little stone coffin and pressed the ignition button. The flames sucked away the air from around her, pulling a piercing cry from deep in her belly. Yes, we saw you. Her skin prickled, began to crawl into bunches and shrivel, peel away. There was a putrid roast and melted hair smell. Her flesh bubbled. We all saw. Oil fizzed and popped. The flames grew. She saw red only and then nothing. She was screaming on the wind that roared through the burning leaves, the forest ablaze. Up here, we're up here. Now her limbs were blackening meat, turning to smoke and ash, revealing the bone beneath 
She screamed, screamed with the wind, laughing with it, gulping in the flames. The boil of worry in her mind rapidly grew. In a moment she felt it fill her skull, then with a hot burst of steam, spray open like a boiler pushed past its limits. Linda, all the answers, it's a new phase, come. I am, she screamed, I'm trying. She felt herself dry out, knew that by now she'd disintegrate around her bones with a good knock. You're nearly there, Linda. Go, go. We are bowing. I... What are you looking back at all the time? What are you looking back at all the time? The End The End What a strange and dark story that was. What weirdo wrote that? I would love to know. Poor old Linda. Um, okay, what did you guys think of that? That's what I'm curious to know. Acoustic Eels said, I love the line, her skin constricted around her limbs. I really felt that. Thanks, Acoustic Eels. Laura Weistich said, nice story. It felt very real. Maybe weird, but in particular, I liked that the handbook was 173 pages long. <laughs> I guess it's the little details that uh, make a story, don't they? Great idea to share your own work. Can't wait to see what everyone else has. Yeah, I hope that some others will put up their work for this. No one has so far. We've had some suggestions for other, you know, favourite stories and stuff from other authors, but no, none of our members. So if you're feeling brave, DM me and we'll organise for it um, tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. Um... Swim said the moment fishy said, random observations. The best imagery was the brain boil. I believe this was inspired from your time in Japan, but it's set in Australia. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that is true. I guess it's set in Australia. I hadn't really thought of where it's set. It's just sort of generic Western country, I suppose. Yeah, I guess I was picturing Australia. But it is inspired by the Japanese sort of... Um, their work ethic and their um, their kind of respect for the dead, I guess. Uh, the bowing descriptions and the handbook were completely believable. Thanks very much. The key line for me, if there's nothing left for you here and you're not going to make an effort, then you're wasting everyone's time, explains to me why Linda immolates herself. It is well written. Yeah, so that line, I think because I reformatted this into a Reddit post, Wait, is that... Yeah, that line is part of Chris's suicide note, I guess. But it does sort of explain... Yeah, Linda's a confused lady. Um, it is well written, says Swims of the Mofishi. Thanks very much. Techrific said, random thoughts. Techrific, it's good to see you again, my friend. You pop in very seldom. Uh, there seems to be history there between Chris and Linda. What must have happened between them to cause the intense feeling of guilt in Linda? What did those voices whisper to her? Did she cause Chris's suicide? What did Chris do to Linda? Is this a passive-aggressive revenge fantasy? Uh, I don't think it's that. The two characters are fairly, well, completely fictional. Um, but those are interesting questions, like why is she so feeling such guilt? I don't think she's responsible for his suicide. I mean, all these things are left open to interpretation, but the way I figure it is she feels guilt over that it's her neighbor's son 
who she still sort of thinks of as a kid. She can't accept that he's an adult now. And he kind of opened up and told her how unhappy he was a few years previous. But And even though she deals with the dead every single day, she never really did anything to um, kind of help him with his depression or his suicidal tendencies. So I guess she's got a little bit of guilt um, about that. But I don't think it's... I don't think all of her guilt is particularly centered around Chris himself. I think uh, it's just kind of like a straw that broke the camel's back sort of situation. Techrific said, This dark tale is juxtaposed with the dry, humorous description of of Japanese work ethic and the striving for perfection. Linda's preoccupation with the intricacies of ojigi, or bowing, and bone-dry exchange between her and her boss is very believable. Her earnestness is puzzling. She seems to take her job very seriously when we're inside her thoughts. This seriousness seems genuine. Her reflections on life are thoughtful. She's probing and soul-searching, taking Socrates' words seriously that an unreflected life is not worth living. But perhaps whatever transpired between her and Chris is what caused this seriousness in her. Is she a waste of space? The immolation scene is truly terrifying in its descriptiveness. We can both sense it on our own skins and hear it in our own heads. This scene might stay with me for a while. Did she really immolate herself, or is it a daydream, a wish, or a fleeting thought before she burns Chris's body? This story reminds me of why short stories can be so powerful and how quickly we can become invested in characters and how what happens to them can affect us as readers. Shake us. Awake. Well done, Anda. Thanks very much, Techrific. Appreciate the kind words. I'm glad you guys enjoyed that. Um, it would have been awkward if you didn't. <laughs> um, yeah, you, uh, should I answer your question there? I wonder. Did she immolate herself or is it a daydream? I guess it's open to interpretation, but sort of by design. In my head, it's a daydream, right? Like she's kind of fantasizing about it and having a bit of a uh, an episode in her head, a bit of a, I don't know, nervous breakdown or whatever you want to call it bit of a meltdown and, and losing her mind a little bit. Um, and I remember just talking about in the, um, in Dubliners, James Joyce, how I really disliked the way he would take information out of the story so it would be open-ended or so it would be kind of um, open to interpretation. And it was like he purposefully omitted details just so it would be that way where he could just as easily have left them in. And that really bugged me. But that's exactly what I did with this story because um, originally it had two more lines after the end there. Um, and those lines were Mr. Yamashita saying, what are you doing? And Linda saying, I don't know what I'm doing or something along those lines. And so it was this kind of um, ending that that depicted that she was maybe she'd crawled into the furnace but she hadn't actually lit it she was just sort of in there doing some kind of weird like she did strip off she did get into the furnace but you know it's probably not actually even possible to to um (laughs) to what's it called to cremate yourself i'm sure you'd probably need to close some kind of safety lock and you know i mean i don't know but yeah so it was sort of a daydream but then I took off those two final lines because I kind of thought, oh, maybe I should leave it a bit more open to interpretation. 
And so that's what I've done. So I guess either way, whatever you think in your head is correct because that's the way I've designed it. Also, I like um, the idea of having that double line as the ending. What are you looking back at all the time? What are you looking back at all the time? That was the first story where I did that and it became a little bit of a, a trademark of my writing. Not that I do on it in every story, but I've done it a few times since. I actually, my latest novel, Personal Fable, ends with a double line like that. And I don't know, I like that. And so this is the story where I kind of first stumbled upon that as an aesthetic and thought it was cool. Um, cool. All right. So tomorrow we are reading The Ransom of Red Chief by O. Henry. Uh, I'll leave a link and a discussion thread for it. Thanks, guys, for um, indulging me there in that. It's kind of enjoyable. It's kind of cool. And, yeah, don't be shy. If you've got a story or a poem or something you've written that you want to share, let's do it. I think that would be really cool. All right, guys. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.